Welcome to the Weekly Benefit Roast, featuring Benefit Indemnity Corporation's President, Roger Bain. Roger has devoted more than 30 years to understanding and developing innovative health benefits plans for large groups and groups as small as five employees. Our moderator is Bob Graham. Take it away, Bob. We're going to be talking about uh, your exposure and whether you can uh, afford the exposure when you're dealing with an employee, uh, employer-owned or self-funded insurance product. If you want to engage with us, you can comment in the chat box or you can raise your hand and we will get to you as quickly as possible. And with uh, that, let me tell you a little bit about Roger Bain. He's been doing innovative health insurance products for 32 years, almost 33, I believe. And I have the privilege today of actually looking at him as uh, we do this. Usually we do it from different locations, but together we're in the same place and we're actually sharing a microphone. So this would be even more exciting. If you've listened before, this could get real fun. So with no further ado, I'm going to turn things over to Roger Bain. Why don't you tell us about the topic today, Roger, and uh, try to keep the exposure to a minimum if you could. Keep the exposure, yeah. Bob picked the greatest day for his microphone to go bad and have to share mine because I'm dealing with a potential walking pneumonia that hopefully really isn't, but we'll see. Anyway, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, as you know, last week we talked a good bit about one of the first myths in self-funded health benefit plan, and that myth really is all about the employer having to run his own health plan. And we've kind of debunked that and got through that. But today we're going to talk about the next myth that we run into in the myths of self-funding, and that is, I can't afford the exposure. So many employers, even after we get through the basic gist that you're not running your own health plan, that you're actually hiring somebody to run it, to do the administration and to insure it, they're still concerned about the exposure because the simple title itself of self-funding sounds threatening and a little bit scary to them. So we're gonna talk about that. When you buy a self-funded health plan, you're not just running a health plan, but you're also covering the exposure of that health plan. You're hiring somebody else to run it, and they're going to buy specific coverage for you. And that specific coverage protects you on one level. And the second level is an aggregate coverage that protects you for the entire group. And we'll talk about the details of these a little bit more. And ultimately, you're going to buy a terminal liability or an extended claims liability coverage so that you've got a lot of insurance that you're purchasing just like you do for your liability and workers' comp and everything else, you're always covering those exposures to provide you the protection that you need so that you can afford the exposure that you decide is appropriate for your company. And of course, employee benefits liability is always one of those things you should have to protect you from some unforeseen circumstances that may occur out there in the marketplace. And Roger, what you're saying is it's not you're out doing this yourself. You're working with the broker who's uh, working with you on the self-funded option to come up with these coverages. And there are some established coverage uh, options that you're working with. So this is not going out and adding five more insurance policies that you have to research and do all the work by yourself on. Is that correct? That's correct, Bob. Your insurance broker, a professional insurance broker, is going to set you up not only with a good recommendation for a third-party administrator to actually run and handle your health plan for you, but also along with that, there's going to be stop-loss coverages throughout, um, and, and they should be aligning all of those into one financial package so that you see precisely what your exposure really is, and that way 
you know that you can or cannot afford that exposure. Most often you can or you wouldn't be buying a self-funded health plan. So that's one way to mitigate the amount of risk you run, because I think there's a perception among some people that self-funded insurance means that if I need to have a million dollars in coverage, I have to have a million dollars sitting in my bank account to cover it. What you're saying here is that's not really the case. Well, that's correct. And not only is that not the case, but since the passage of the ACA, that million dollars worth of coverage is now unlimited, required by law. So if you're going to provide qualified coverage under the law, it's got to be an unlimited annual or lifetime benefit. Well, most employers don't have unlimited resources to provide that. So they buy coverage for themselves. The only difference here is, not the only difference, but the primary difference is that the employer is purchasing coverage to protect the employer instead of the employee. Because I, as an employer, I'm going to pay the employee's claims. But then I say to the insurance company, I don't want to pay all of them. If it gets ugly, you come in and kick in. And so they buy coverage. And the first coverage they buy is specific stop-loss coverage. And the specific stop-loss coverage can be as low as $5,000 in exposure. That's a really low number. Many states play with that and make it be a little bit higher. But even at $20,000 or $25,000, it's a relatively no, no, low number in the big picture of an employee benefit plan. So when we take a look at the specific stop-loss, let's talk about really what it does. It protects the employer from any one person in the group having significant amounts of, of benefit costs to the employer. So we have, employees have benefit claims. Employer has benefit costs, right? Because they're paying the piece of those claims that the employees don't pay through deductibles and coinsurance. So when that piece comes in as an employer responsibility under the benefit plan, the employer pays it, but only to a certain point. And that point would be the specific stop loss amount. Hey, Roger, Wayne is asking, is that $5,000 amount you gave with the stop loss, is that per employee or is that per um, event or is that per year? How does that break out? Well, good question. Uh, and let, let's jump actually to the definition and it might help here. So the specific stop loss amount, and this is just my wording of this. And, and so it gives you a pretty good handle of it. But the specific stop loss amount is the maximum amount of financial responsibility that the employer takes for the costs associated with that promise to pay benefits or the insuring clause that they make in the document they give to the employees. And we call that document the summary plan description, right? So you've got a promise to pay benefits made in the summary plan description. And the specific stop loss is the maximum amount of financial responsibility retained by an employer for the costs associated with that promise to pay benefits on behalf of any single plan participant during the term of the contract. Almost always the term of that contract is 12 months worth of claims incurred. And then we'll talk a little bit more about some details on that of what happens when claims get paid later on. But, but that's the thing. The maximum retained by the employer for any one person is the specific stop loss amount. That in and of itself starts to give you an idea that you can certainly afford the exposure because that number is flexible and controllable and it reduces the overall claims expectation for the group considerably because one big giant claim can't sink an employer because they have coverage at a limited amount. So that's the number one thing. So Roger, if I'm understanding this correctly, this would mean that I as an employer or owner would have more control over how much I'm investing each year 
than I would if I were doing a traditional plan where the insurance company is just going to say, or the carrier is going to say, this is what you have to pay to cover your employees. Am I, am I understanding this correctly? Um, repeat that question. Okay. So with the traditional insurance, you're told this is the amount, if you want this much coverage, this is much, how much you're going to pay as the employer. But with this, you have some more flexibility. You can set that bar at different levels based on what your tolerance and what your needs and what your interest is, correct? That's absolutely correct, Bob. Employers can buy varying specific stop loss amounts. So you might buy a $10,000 specific in some states. You might buy a 22,000. Maryland has a 22,500 minimum, for example. But other states still go as low as $5,000 specific stop loss. So all depends on where you are, but you have a lot of flexibility in what you select. And some employers say, look, I want to pay less than the insurance company. Give me a higher specific stop loss amount. I'll pay a little bit more of the claims because I don't think they're going to happen. I've got a really young and healthy group not going to pay a whole lot of claims. Give me the lowest cost insurance. And then whatever the claims are, the claims are, but I'm still going to come out way ahead. And I have a question from uh, Bill right here, Roger. And he's saying, how do you decide that amount? Is that, is that he's saying, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Well, that's, that's a really good question, Bill. And, and fortunately for all of us, you don't really have to make that number up and pull it out of thin air. What happens on the stop loss insurance side is the insurance companies have what we call actuaries and underwriters. The actuary is the guy that crunches all the statistics and all of the numbers. The underwriter is the one that looks at your group and says, hey, are these people reasonably healthy? Do we have any catastrophic risks we need to worry about? And then they blend those two sciences together to develop what would be an optimal specific stop loss rate for you and aggregate rate for you and develop the formal proposal with your broker that shows here's your administrative cost, here's your specific stop loss cost, here's your aggregate stop loss cost. And if all things considered, here's the maximum amount of claims that you'll pay. And when you total all that up, it comes in 10% less than what you're paying somebody else. Well, you've got a win-win because not only are you buying a health plan that is less expensive, but potentially, if you don't spend all of your claims money, you get to keep it. I hope that helps you, Bill. Thank you, Roger. You want to move on to the next one? I think we understand, I at least understand the uh, specific stop loss. So let's talk. It looks like you're ready to talk about aggregate stop loss amounts. Right. Aggregate stop loss happens when you, you talk about, well, what if a whole bunch of people in my group get sick? Or there's a, an accident with a handful of my employees go on vacation together. It's not a work trip. They're just friends and they go and they all get hurt in an accident and everybody has a bunch of claims. Well, that's where we have the aggregate stop loss. So sometimes we even discuss aggregate first and specific second, but we'll, we'll talk about this for a second just from here. The aggregate stop loss, same type of definitions, the maximum amount of responsibility the employer retains for the whole group right? So everybody gets sick and everybody has claims under this $25,000 specific stop loss or even over the 25 doesn't matter because they're picked up anyway. But what we're saying is that no matter what, if everybody in your group got sick, you've got a maximum for the entire group. So that gives everybody the limited protection that they need and really sets an established budget. 
that the employer is now looking at. So, you know, we talk about this myth that I can't afford the exposure. Well, what do you mean? The exposure on your fully insured plan is X number of dollars a year. In your self-funded plan, we're going to limit your exposure to X number of dollars a year. So in both cases, you have a reasonably set upper limit. You know what your maximum worst case scenario is. But the difference in a fully insured versus self-funded, in the fully insured, you pay all that money over to the insurance company, and if they do better, they keep the dividends. In a self-insurance arrangement, you pay the insurance company to protect you at a certain level, but if you come in well under that level, you get to keep that money. That's your claims dollars. Carol's writing in all capital letters, self-funding doesn't seem like the right name for this because I'm not really funding all of it. It's just a portion. Roger, I'm sure you have a comment for that. Well, I do have a comment for that because there are multiple players in the marketplace that like to call it something else, right? They call it level funded. They call it partially self-funded. They call it uh, a ERISA plan. They call it all kinds of different things. But technically, the self-funded name comes from our government, right? Our beloved government, when they name something, we pretty much like to stick to that, to stay within compliance of the rules and the regs. Self-funding is self-funding. And under the rules, the Employee Retirement Income Act, Security Act of 1974, basically said, when we do this, if an employer is providing health and welfare benefits to his employees with his own money, he cannot be deemed to be in the business of insurance. He's just in business providing a benefit to his employees. That fact is what saves the employer from a whole lot of state insurance regulations and gives them the flexibility and the wherewithal to do a better job for themselves to maintain more control of their benefit plan and to provide the coverage to their employees and get to keep the change. So ERISA, as we know it, is the retirement fund. It's a federal plan or federal law, and that creates different regulations under which these self-funded plans are regulated. So the rules are somewhat different, somewhat similar to the ACA, but in some ways somewhat different. And where the differences lie, that's where the employer sees the benefit. Is that a good way to summarize it? It is, it is, Bob, except for it's not so much that it's similar to the ACA because the ACA is federal law. So the ACA regulates self-funded plans as well as fully insured plans, but the ACA itself has different rules for self-funded and for group sizes and, and the individual market. But the real key difference is state law. State insurance law and states could all have their own independent set of laws. So if you're an employer with employees in six different states, it can be a real mess to try and compare for that employee. Well, Virginia law says this, but our plan is domiciled in Maryland. And so you get this Maryland benefit. And if you're in West Virginia, you get the Maryland benefit. If you're in Pennsylvania, you get the Maryland benefit. And trying to compare that and have an HR department communicate to those employees what coverage is different compared to where they would be in their own state is a nightmare. In the world of self-funding, you have one benefit plan that fits all of the states, and, and you can do that in a more clean way, uh, and you don't have all the state regulations to contend with. So you still have to make sure you communicate to the employee what your benefits are, but 
the, the difference is, is pretty clear. And you're regulated under the federal guidelines instead of the state, which helps you do a lot of good things. So in some respects, and you've never told me this before, that would mean that a self-funded plan might have less administrative burden because it sounds like you're dealing with one set of rules instead of multi-jurisdictions. Well, in a way, that's one of the reasons why self-funded plans tend to be more efficient. Uh, when you look at the administrative costs between a fully insured plan and a self-funded plan, if your big giant insurance company ABC or whatever you want to use for the initials, you might even be blue, but you get the idea that in in that scenario, that health plan has to file every single policy in 50 different states. Every state they want to do business in, they have to draft the policy, they have to follow a whole unique set of state laws and mandates and rules and regulations in every single state and follow all that compliance in every state. In some states, it might take as much as six to eight months to get filed rates approved, uh, get filed plans approved. And then every year you have to file rates in those states as well. So take that and multiply it 50 fold. And you're talking about a compliance department in, in all of these different markets that is just massive. So if you look at a third party administrator, their compliance department might be 1 50th of that size and cost. And so there is a greater efficiency in that scenario. But again, but that's, that's kind of out of the realm of the exposure, but certainly the administrative cost is one of the exposures in any health plan. And so that's a piece of this today. Okay, I'm starting to understand this more and more. Roger, you wanna keep going? Uh, it looks like you're up to terminal liability options. Yeah, let's talk about terminal liability because what, what a lot of people, this is where, the self-funded market, unfortunately, gets slightly confusing. And that is where in a self-funded plan, I mentioned to you in these previous descriptions at the end, this is during the term of the contract. So most times, the coverage that we're providing to employees during that term of the contract is that 12 months calendar contract that you're purchasing. For all of the costs that are incurred in that time frame, and however, paid within a certain time frame. So if the contract says they're incurred in this 12 months or this calendar year, for example, and paid in this calendar year, that's great. It gives us a definitive thing. But what happens to claims that I as an employer have promised to pay benefits to my employee for that claim that happened between Christmas and New Year's and the bill hasn't even been paid yet or hasn't even been written yet? I haven't even written the bill so when we write that bill, we're talking about now it doesn't come in until January of the next year. Well, my stop loss coverage is up. And what happens? So there's a couple of ways they do this. Terminal liability options, number one, they can be varied provisions, but basically it provides the employer coverage for all costs incurred during that term, but not yet paid in the current benefit year. So that covers that, right? And we can do that in a couple of ways. An extended claims settlement option, it takes an extended settlement period. So it's gonna cover all of your claims incurred in that 12 months and paid in 18 months, which means we have six months extra for all of those claims to run off, get into the system and be paid by the stop loss insurer without leaving the employer any exposure. So that's really, again, back to this whole myth of I can't afford the exposure. Well, this is how we cover that exposure. We look to every avenue and every possible scenario, and we try and provide a level of coverage there 
that says to the employer, you're covered here, there, and everywhere for any of the costs associated with your promise to pay claims on behalf of employees. And so we can do these things in a variety of different ways, but almost, all, well, not almost always, but always they're designed to do it in a way that competes with your fully insured rates. And every time a self-funded proposal wins over a, self, uh, over a fully insured proposal, in my book, you have an extra win, and that is claim savings. But that doesn't even count transparency and other value propositions, which we'll get as we start covering other myths. But today, what we're really just trying to do is make sure everybody understands how we're covering the exposure of these plans. Okay, Roger. So when we talk about terminal liability, would that also cover if I were in a calendar year and I had an employee who had an incident on December 31st, say they went in with uh, the need for heart surgery and they had heart surgery on the second, would that cover it or does that move into the new plan year? Well, coverage on it just like any plan year, right? If you had a, a big Blue Cross coverage from January 1 to December 31, the surgery on January 2nd of the next year certainly would not be covered under that contract. It would be covered under the next year's contract. Self-funded is no different. Right. So if they go in on December 31st and they incur claims on December 31st, those claims are paid under that year. But once we cross that line and go into the first, they will be paid under the next year. So it's no different than a fully insured relationship in that respect that the incurred date for that employee's benefit cost is, is still a function of which contract is covered in. Are right, you ready to move to the next one? It looks like we're up to employer benefit liability. Yeah, and this is something that I don't sell, and I would say you, you should talk to your property and casualty agent for this information, so it's really not something we do, but it is a very important component for anybody offering benefits to their employees. Talk to your property and casualty guy and get employer benefit liability coverage because what it does is provides that coverage for miscellaneous and unforeseen exposures related to providing benefits to your employees. It could be anything. It could be a disgruntled employee saying you cut them off of the insurance too soon or you didn't offer him insurance and you got to produce the waiver that proves you did and he signed off and all of those kinds of things. And, and usually the big issue in today's litigious society is let's cover the defense costs for this stuff and make sure you have it because, you know, benefits like anything it can become a nuisance when somebody gets unhappy about it and, and wants to come after you for it. So this would not be one that typically when you are putting together a self-funded package for someone that you would include, but it would be one that your company would recommend to people. Well, I, again, not being licensed for property and casualty, I don't recommend it. I just recommend you go talk to your property and casualty guy about it. But yes, it's it's typically added as an inclusion on your your. Uh, corporate liability policy. And so it's a real easy rider to add there. I talked to some agents to say, we put it on every property and casualty package we sell. So don't worry about it. It's already there, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're, they're surprised by the fact that anybody wants it. And it's, and it's something that really should be added there. Okay. Kevin's saying, Hey, thanks for that. I never knew that existed. I'm going to have to check into that. So another happy customer, Roger. Well, yeah, and, and Kevin, you might find out that you have it already, and just in this long discussion of a property and casualty renewal, you may have missed that little element of all the different riders and things that you have on your plan. So, Bob, are there any other questions out there? Yeah, I've got a um, question from, I think it's Patrice. She's saying, this seems complicated. 
and a lot for me to take in. Do you have any suggestions for how I can manage this more easily? It sounds like it would take a lot of time, even for now, to get this in place by January 1st. Well, that's, <laughs> Patrice, I don't think you have to worry about that because we're still writing May 1 plans at the moment. <laughs> uh, and granted, those guys are a little bit behind the eight ball. It should have been done by the 20th of April. But the reality is it doesn't take that long to set up a self-funded plan because they're, we're already built. Right. You already have third party administrators and stop loss carriers and all these people in line waiting to provide the service to you. So if, it's just like uh, if you were saying you're going to cook this gourmet meal, it takes a long time to grow the lettuce for the salad. Well, the lettuce is already sitting there in the supermarket for you. So all you really have to do is come in and pick it up. And with a good professional insurance broker, if you have the right person, he should be your top quality gourmet supermarket where you can go in and pick up the pieces you need to put that dinner on the plate in a heartbeat. Roger Evans says he'd love to get your recipe for grilled lettuce, if you could share that with him. So I don't know if you have that available, but I'm with Evan. That seems like a really interesting delicacy. So tell us more about that, if you would. I'll tell you the best thing I can about lettuce is that if we do the self-funded plan right, you get a lot of lettuce back at the end of the year. And we don't, we don't have to grill it, but that's really what we're talking about. That's what self-funded is about. I was in my staff meeting today, and, and it was announced that we had three more refund checks to deliver to groups that are getting money back. And one of them was $2,600, and another one was $3,600, and another one was $29,000. And these are all small groups getting surplus refunds of claims money that they expected and budgeted for but didn't have to spend, and now they're getting all that money back. And, and you know, that's just great news for everybody in this business. I bet you're everyone's friend when you're giving them the lettuce and the cabbage back, right? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty easy time to get a client to be happy with you. So we, we like those days. Now, look, for all of, the, all of those, uh, in your chat box on screen, for everybody that's been here to join us, remember, we promise everybody this wonderful uh, cup of coffee for joining us for our benefit roast each week. If you click on that link, you can register for your form, and we'll send you that $5 out for a free cup of coffee so that you can join us again and always have a cup of coffee by your side. So don't forget it. It's on your screen, but it's also in an easy-to-click link in your chat box, or I think you can click that and get right to it on the Internet without having to type all that mess into your browser. Um, and if I don't see any other questions, we will terminate in just a moment. Bob, do you have any more on your screen? I do not, Roger. I, I want to thank you for all that insight. You covered a lot of ground and a lot of legalese in English. I actually understood. I was worried that we were going to get either uh, too exposed to things or not exposed enough, but I think we got the right balance. And I appreciate everyone who listened today. And certainly if they have questions, I know you like to give them a way to reach you with their specific questions. So why don't you do that right now, Roger? You got it, Bob. Again, it's Roger Bain, 443-275-7412. Anytime you need me, just give me a call. Again, Roger, 443-275-7412. Be happy to answer any other questions that you come up with later. And I will tell you, I have meetings with Roger uh, almost every day, it seems, and he will take a call during a meeting most times. So he's serious about being there with the phone, and there's no question you can ask him that is uh, not one he's heard before. And I've never, in all the calls that uh, he's taken, he's never said to someone, that's a really silly question. He's usually quite helpful and quite thorough, and often I end up having to leave because he's so busy answering the questions. So if you have a question we didn't cover today, 
or you want to dip your feet into the idea of self-funding, I would recommend you give Roger a call. That was 443-275-7412. And with that, Roger, oh, wait, Roger's got something else he wants to say. One thing, just for the record, Bob, I often take calls in in meetings with uh, talk show host guys, but not with my customers, my clients, my brokers. So, guys, don't think I'm going to be dropping in, in the middle of our meeting and taking calls. But, but yeah, when we're having uh, casual office work being done around here, it is our practice. Make sure we take the call and remember that the customer is always first. I think it's funny you consider our work casual. We'll talk about that later. But right now, I'm going to go see if he's going to grill me some of that grilled lettuce. So have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next week at 3.30 Eastern time for another Benefit Roast. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Benefit Roast, a weekly discussion sponsored by Benefit Indemnity Corporation. Employers in a wide range of fields are using employer-owned health benefits plans to deliver better benefits to their employees at a lower cost. Learn more at BenefitIndemnity.co. That's BenefitIndemnity.co. See you again next week.